Good morning, church. My name is Hugh, and I'm one of the pastors here. I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. There are two ways for us to understand the relationship between who we are and what we do. First, you could say that what you do defines who you are. This is what our culture would say. What you do determines who you are. And more than that, even how you feel determines who you are and what is true for you. The other way of understanding this is to say that who you are determines what you do. This is scripture's voice on the issue. The Bible tells us that what is in us will be seen on the outside of us. That a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. That you're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Our thoughts, our deeds, our reactions are shaped by what is ruling our heart. So that we're not free to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We're actually ruled by something that's in us. And when the Bible uses the word heart, it's a biblical expression to describe the seat of our life, the core of us, the center of our being. This morning, we're going to pick up in the opening pages of 2 Samuel. And in these first verses, we're introduced to the two characters that are most prominent in chapter 1. And we're going to see what is in the hearts of these men. The way that we can know what's in their hearts is that we can see it manifest in their words, their actions, and their reactions. First, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you've not left us to ourselves. We thank you for the testimony that it bears, that it is the truth, that it is a reflection of your character, that, Father, you breathed this word out for us. Father, we're convinced that we are lost without you, without you disclosing your character to us. And Father, we're convinced that this word, this book is chiefly about your son. And so we pray that the spirit would give us eyes to see Jesus this morning. That he would capture our hearts anew. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We begin reading in verse 1. After the death of Saul... David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed at Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. This is our first character that we want to examine. The anonymous Amalekite. We have no idea what his name is. But he shows up with a message for David. 
Now David was not in the battle with Saul, with Jonathan and his fellow Israelites because we know from back in chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, he finally grew weary of running for his life from Saul that he thought it's better for me just to go live among the Philistines, among our enemies than to be pursued like a dog by King Saul. He takes up residence in Ziklag where he tricks King Achish into thinking that David is really attacking his own countrymen. In reality, he's plundering Philistine villages. He's making himself rich and he's ready to go to battle with Achish. But the Achish's fellow commanders forbid it. So they send David away. And so David goes back to uh, Philist Philistia and goes back to plundering those lands. In verse 1, the timing is clear to us that he has just gotten back from one of his raids. He's back in Ziklag for two days. And this man shows up with torn clothes and dust on his head. This is... A visual of a man in mourning. If we put this in contemporary language, this would be the man shows up in a black tie, black suit. Maybe he's got a funeral program in his hand. He's very somber. He's very subdued. The, the author is being very intentional here with his language. This man is presenting himself as a mourner. And then in the next dozen verses, David's going to ask the man five questions. We read in verses 3 and 4. David asked him, where have you come from? He replied to him, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. Question number two, what was the outcome? Tell me. David asked him, the troops fled from the battle, he answered. Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. We know that Saul and Jonathan are dead because we just read of it last week in chapter 31. The narrator tells us what happened. However, David is over 80 miles away. He's far removed from the battleground. He has no idea what's happened. And so David gets the report that Saul has died and he asks a third question in verse 5. David asked the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The life of King Saul is of great interest and importance to David. David can never become king while King Saul still lived. Now we've seen multiple times that David had opportunities to kill Saul. To get rid of that problem, but every time, David cannot even fathom lifting a finger against the Lord's anointed. We read the man's response in verses 6 through 10. He says, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, he replied, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. At that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in on him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me. So I answered, I'm at your service. He asked me, who are you? I told him, I'm an Amalekite. Then he begged me, stand over me and kill me, for I'm mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen... He couldn't survive. 
I took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Now, if you've been following closely, if, you've, if you're reading 1 Samuel, the ending, closely, you're going to know that the details don't exactly line up. What this messenger has relayed doesn't square with what the narrator tells us from last week's chapter. We saw last week that Saul took his own life by falling on the sword. And here's a real simple solution to the dilemma. We can trust what the narrator tells us about the events. And because the Amalekites version doesn't square up, we can know for certain that he's lying. He's a scammer. He's trying to capitalize on Saul's death to put himself in a position to receive treasure and position. He gives the impression of mourning. He humbly falls to the ground before David. He thinks that he will be rewarded by bringing this good news. Hey, David, your enemy is dead. At last, you're free and you're going to be able to come and go as you want. You're going to be the king. Killing this foe. Who knows what David's going to do to reward him? He wants to capitalize on the situation and he's happy to lie in hopes of receiving this treasure. What's in the Amalekite's heart? What's in this man's heart is a willingness to do anything for personal gain, to lie, to steal, to cheat for his own advantage. He's living by the ethic of me first. If we're honest, we'll all admit how attractive this is, how easy it is for us to be tempted in this way. I'll just tell this story in such a way that I'm positioned as the hero so that you guys know how great I am. Or I'll be happy to take individual credit for work that the entire group did. Or if something gets sideways, well, oh, well, that wasn't my fault. I'm going to shift the blame to someone else. It's it becomes too easy for us to cut corners. Well, yeah, I can take an extra long lunch today because I've got this one client. I mean, they pay tens of thousands of dollars a month anyway. I can just kind of pad my time on their account. What's another hour or so? The me first ethic is completely contrary to the Christian life. The ethic of Life in Christ's kingdom is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether I'm eating or drinking or whatever I'm doing, I'm going to do it all for the glory of God. The ethic of life in Christ's kingdom says I'm both made by Jesus and I'm redeemed by Jesus. I'm doubly his. We need to be convinced of the truth of Colossians 3. Whatever you do, do it from the heart. As something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Believer, we live our lives before the face of God. We read down in verse 13 where David's going to ask another question of the man. David inquired of the young man who had brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm the son of a resident alien, he said. I'm an Amalekite. This is a man without a country. He's not living among his people. He's living among Israel. He's a foreigner. 
Now Moses gave God's people laws concerning resident aliens. He says, treat them in Exodus 22, treat them kindly, be fair to them, because remember you once were aliens in Egypt. Laws gave this man protections, but it also held him to requirements. He would know the law. He would know that he could never lay a hand on God's anointed. Then we come to verse 14. David's going to ask his fifth and final question. David questioned him, How is it that you are not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This question is one of force. How could you? What were you thinking? Who do you think you are to do something like this? This fifth question, David is not seeking to gain any information. He's telling this man his life is forfeit. And then the declaration in verses 15 and following. David summoned one of his servants and said, Come here and kill him. The servant struck him and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, your blood is on your own head because your mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. This man wagered his life that it would be to his advantage to position himself as Saul's killer. But he could not have been more wrong. In truth, this Amalekite is responsible for his own death. David is the other character in this, in this passage. What's in his heart? The author intentionally arranges the material here so that we can see what's in his heart. In the beginning, in the opening verses, we have this clear description of times and locations. The author is making very, very clear that David has nothing to do with Saul's death. He is completely innocent. He's nowhere near the battle. The final third of 1 Samuel has this recurring theme of how, how David could have killed Saul. He could have taken his life, but he never attacks. So how does David respond to the news that Saul is dead? Will he be excited? Will he be relieved? It's stuck. read in verses 11 and 12. David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and all the men with him did the same. They mourned, wept, and fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword. For Saul, his son Jonathan, the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. Once again, the author here has arranged the material in such a way that we do not miss the point. Just look back at the text. In verse 10, the Amalekite is taking credit for Saul's death. And then the author places this response that David has in the middle of the interrogation. He places it before questions four and five. The author wants us to see, to not miss the point that David's response is the big idea in the passage. It's the highlight. David's heart isn't filled with compromise and rebellion like Saul. His heart is not filled with a me first ethic like the Amalekite. His heart is gripped by 
God's glory and the good of God's people. David mourns for real. He's devastated that the man that was hunting him down is dead. The man that forced him to move away from God's people has now met his demise. The only explanation for that kind of reaction is that God had this man's heart. What was in David's heart is love for God. Now the scriptures are really clear that the Christian's home is not here on this earth. Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await the Lord Jesus to come back. First Peter says that we're like, uh, Peter says that we're like aliens and sojourners because this is not our home. Paul in Ephesians 2 say, will say that we are already raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. It's going to be increasingly difficult for us to be comfortable in this place, in this world. The ethic of following King Jesus is going to mean we're weird. It's going to mean that there are times that the way we react to hardship, the way we react to suffering should, should declare to a world that we are not our own. It should be indicative of, a fact, of the fact that we belong to Jesus and that he has our heart. This is not a new thing. This is how it's always been for those that follow Christ. God intends his people to shine for their good works to be seen so that God in heaven is glorified. The only way that David can respond like this is because God had his heart. We read on how he begins to write this lament, a song. It's a, uh, like a funeral eulogy. David is commemorating Saul and Jonathan, and he's talking about the most ideal aspects of their life. There's no point in David bringing up old stuff. There's no need in David bringing up Saul's shortcomings now. Jesus taught his disciples to love their enemies, and this song from David is one of the most beautiful examples of loving an enemy. We'll read the song quickly. Verses 19 and 20. The splendor of Israel lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Do not tell it in Gath. Don't announce it in the marketplaces of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. And the daughters of the uncircumcised will celebrate. Saul and Jonathan were, were the splendor of Israel, but now they're dead. And don't talk about what's happened. Don't tell this news because I don't want our enemies to be talking about it. I don't want them to rejoice. Little does David know that the Philistines have already hung Saul's body up, making him a spectacle. Verse 21, mountains of Gilboa, let no dew or rain be on you or fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer anointed with oil. He wants there to be a curse on the land. No more celebrations here ever again. This place, let it become like a desert. Verses 22 and 23, Jonathan's bow never retreated. Saul's sword never returned unstained. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, Saul and Jonathan loved 
and delightful. They were not parted in life or in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. He's honoring them for being great warriors. They were mighty. They were successful. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxurious things, who decked your garments with gold ornaments. Israel benefited from Saul's reign, that the nation became rich under his leadership. And in verses 25 and 26, how the mighty have fallen in the thick of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of women. David is especially grieved at losing his brother, his dearest friend, Jonathan. Much is made about this statement that your love for me is more wondrous than the love of women. This is not in any way a sexual comment. Many translations will say that uh, this is surpassing the love of women, but there are no translations that say this is replacing the love of women. This brotherhood friendship is a picture of covenant loyalty between these men. Consider Jonathan, the son of the king, the heir to the throne, and his disposition his entire life as portrayed in 1 Samuel is to be in David's corner. He does not seek his own interests. He puts David's first. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. David is suffering here. Now I don't need to convince any of you that there is suffering in this life. There are times and seasons where we need to lament because we see things that are not as they should be. There, this, this underscores the reality that we are not meant for this world forever. Our suffering should cause us to cry out, come Lord Jesus, come make these wrongs right. How can David sing in the midst of his suffering? He can sing because God had captured his heart. Church, the same is true for us. We can sing in our suffering because it is certain a day is coming where there will be no more suffering. Suffering will end forever. On that day, there will be people from among every nation before the throne. And we're going to sing a song to Jesus. We're going to sing that Jesus is worthy because he was slaughtered in our place to purchase people for God. We sing today even in our suffering because Jesus has given us reason to sing both now and into eternity. I want to make two points of application from our passage. First point, guard your heart. Guard your heart. We read in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else for it is the source of of life. Last week, Rodney preached on Saul's death, and he served us so well in, in showing how Saul cultivated a heart that put him on a trajectory to go farther and farther away from God's plan. That he began with small compromise, 
that then became pragmatic decisions that were rebellion to outright rebellion. And at the end of his life, he's consulting a witch. There's a progression of his heart, a trajectory away from the living God. Consider what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 3. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Just want to point out a couple things. First, this passage is directed to believers. He addresses brothers and sisters. He's warning these believers that it is possible to set your heart on a trajectory that takes you far from God. I want you to notice the progression. We begin with an evil heart, which leads to an unbelieving heart. A heart that turns away from God. A heart that's hardened by sin. We become calloused. We no longer feel sensitive. We no longer feel conviction to sins. We find ourselves doing things that years ago we could never imagine ourselves doing. So the question for us this morning, what is the trajectory of your heart today? Which direction is your heart aimed? Is it toward God or away from Him? Are you excited by knowing God or has that relationship grown cold? Are you captivated by the good news of the gospel or has it become old news? We should see in Saul's life and in this letter to the Hebrews that this is a warning for us. It's possible to lose our hearts by believing our, a lie. It's not beyond us to actively engage in all kinds of sin. So there are important questions for us to ask. What is it that thrills my heart above all else? What's the longing of my heart? What has captured my heart? We can all answer these questions in all manners of ways. There was a man that lived in North Africa 1,500 years ago. He's regarded as one of the greatest theologians in the church. His name was Augustine, and he said, Our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. In our lives before Christ, we all sought to find life and meaning and joy in all manner of things. We sought to get meaning for our lives by living life our own way as our own kings. We know what's best and no one can tell us what to do. I get to make the rules for my life. If there are any non-Christians in the room this morning, the Christian faith is not meant to make you better or to make the circumstances of your life better. The Christian faith is not meant to give you a new set of ideas to believe. The Christian faith is meant to give you a new king. The Christian faith is meant to give you a living person, the only person in all of human history that is capable of bearing the weight of the desires of our hearts. 
It's King Jesus. The invitation of the gospel is to find rest in Jesus. So Christian, if you've become, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know how easy it is for our attention to be diverted. To find, to be captivated, for our hearts to be turned to lesser things. It's so easy to push Jesus out of first place. Psalm 73 is a wonderful passage to pray. Verses 25 and 26, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Jesus is our treasure, church. Let's pray to this end every day that Jesus would have our hearts, that we would see him as he is, glorious and wonderful and the treasure above all treasures. Church, guard your hearts. Second application point. We need to understand the opposition's tactics. Understand the opposition's tactics. Over the last six or seven weeks, I was able to help coach my son's flag football team for the YMCA. Um, it's pretty challenging for eight and nine-year-olds to know how to line up and how to run a play and all that. So the Y will allow coaches to be on the field with the players. So you got seven boys lined up against seven boys. One coach against one coach. The offensive coach would call the boys together into a huddle and draw up a play in the dirt. The real ones would have like a folder with laminated plays. It's goals for next year. The defensive coach would then see how the offense is lined up. And he'll see that they're tipping their hand in some way. And then he's, he's warning, hey guys, watch out. They're going to give it a number five. He's going to run that trick play. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. They're making you think one thing, but they're going to do another thing. The coach on the field wants his team to be aware of the opposition's tactics. We can know about what our enemy is doing and how he's trying to trick us. Read about it in the opening pages of the Bible. How the serpent comes into the garden and craftily sows deceit. He sows distrust into the heart of the man and the woman. His lies cause them to question God's goodness and his trustworthiness. Did God really say this first lie is the same lie that he's using to this day. Our adversary is a liar. The truth is not in him. And so he twists the truth toward his own ends. Satan is our enemy, but we also carry around an enemy within us. Christians are new creations with new natures, but we aren't fully freed yet from our sin. We still carry around these bodies that are longing for redemption. That's why we read in Jeremiah 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. It's incurable. Who can understand it? There is a very old book written by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Brooks masterfully exposes what Satan does to draw souls into sin. 
I'll, I'll offer just a couple as highlights. He says, Satan draws the soul to sin by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. By causing saints to compare themselves and their ways with those reputed to be worse than them. By painting sin with virtue's colors. By persuading the soul that repentance is easy. And therefore the soul need not worry closely about sinning. By presenting God to the soul as one made up all of mercy. Now this last one is terrifying. Because God, it's true. God is full of mercy. But here the adversary is highlighting one attribute of God while trying to uh, cover up the other. He is certainly full of mercy, but he's also holy and just. If we understand the tactics of our enemy, then we will stand a far greater chance at coming through them. Satan lies. The Bible calls him the accuser. He has a wicked agenda to convince you of lies, to cause you to despair. You're a sinner. You're always going to be dogged by this sin. This is going to mark the rest of your life. If people knew what you really did, they would reject you. You're a fake and a hypocrite. You call yourself a Christian? Hardly. Look at your life. You're a mess. These are the kinds of lies that we will all feel to be true at times. They may feel true to us, but they are lies. And the gospel is a better and more certain word to us. We need to know it so that we won't be swayed by these lies. And we need to know it so that we can speak truth to our brothers and sisters when they are being swayed. The gospel reminds us that we have an advocate on our side. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That we were once far off, but we've been brought near. That we were once strangers, but now we've been adopted into the family of God. We once had no hope, but now we have a living hope within us. That God is mighty to save and that he will do his final work to conform us to the image of Christ. The reformer Martin Luther, when asked, what do you do? When the enemy is accusing you, he says, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, I shall be also. That is the gospel response to accusation. My encouragement to you this morning church, is to watch your heart, to guard your heart. Let Jesus have your heart. Choose to trust him anew this day and every day. Be on guard. Hold to the, to the truth. Cling to Jesus so that our lives are on a trajectory toward him and his glory. Jesus is better. Jesus is better because he's worthy of our hearts. And glory to God, our holding on to Jesus doesn't rest on us because Jesus is holding on to us. Jesus is the great shepherd. He gets all the sheep home in the end. So church, let's find hope and encouragement in that this morning. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we thank you for the way that you have loved us in the gospel 
We thank you that you have not loved us in empty words, but you have loved us indeed. You have loved us in giving yourself to us. And Father, in these next couple of moments of silence, as we just sit and ponder your word, Father, I pray that you would, in your kindness, lead us to repentance where that is needed. Father, where we may be weak in our faith, that you would remind us of the truths of the gospel, where we are feeling on attacked by the adversary's lies, that we would find hope and life in the truth. Lord, in, the, in these moments, meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pray silently for the next couple of minutes and the band will come up in just a moment. <clears throat> 